Does the Catholic Church have anything to say about your paycheck, your job, and your work week? As a matter of fact, more than you might think. Today on Spirit Inspire, we take a deep dive into the Catholic Church's teaching on the dignity of work, the dignity of the worker, and the importance of rest, starting right now. Broadcasting from the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville, Kentucky, this is Spirit Inspire. And now, here is your host. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Spirit and Spire. I'm your host for today's episode, Isaac Fox, joined as usual with my wonderful friends and co-hosts, Mr. John Soule. Hello, everyone, as always. And Mr. Vince Ricketts. Hello. So quite recently, um, in our country, we celebrated Labor Day. And that got all of us kind of thinking about labor, about work. And that's a pretty important topic. I think we spend a vast amount of our life engaged in work. And for something that is such a big part of our lives, we often don't think about it from a religious or spiritual perspective. And I think what maybe a lot of people, perhaps a lot of Catholics don't realize, is that the Catholic Church has had a great deal to say on the subject of work, of the value and dignity of work and of workers, of political and economic structures that may or may not be acceptable, you know, for to human dignity. Um, just a, a host of things about this. And particularly for the last almost century and a half now, we've had a number of popes uh, regularly making statements, including important encyclical letters about these very topics. Yeah. And, and a lot of people don't know any of this because they're working. They're busy working, like the yes. nine to five, right? Exactly. Living paycheck to paycheck. There's some kind of sense of desperation, anxiety. I mean, in recent years with the global lockdown, a lot of people left their jobs or yeah. their jobs were completely reorganized or eliminated. And so some people are referring it to not as the Great Depression, but the Great Resignation, you know? And so there's some kind of resistance. Yeah to the industrialized attitude a lot of people have toward work yeah. now that makes us feel like machines are cogs in the wheel. And yet at the same time, there's that increasing encroachment of the mechanization of industry, right? Yeah, the increase AI of AI. And all of that. So a lot of people I think are feeling anxiety and stress and feeling like they're so overwhelmed and uh, drowning in whatever job they might have, that it's hard to to live differently and see differently. Yeah. And I think today will be really, really powerful to break yeah. some of these themes open. I think it's important. I think this isn't just technical or theoretical, but it has a real practical bearing on how we work and how we live our lives and how we seek to inform and structure our, our societies uh, around us. So yeah, today we want to look in, into some of these questions, see what the church's teaching is on them, uh, look at, I think, um, you know, the dignity and value of work and of human nature. Since we are humans that do the work, we are humans first, workers second. And so I think that the dignity of work cannot really truly be understood by Christians without first understanding the dignity and value of being human, right? Mm -hmm. The one has to kind of flow from the other. And then hopefully we can look at um, what some of the popes have said, maybe dig into uh, the pros and cons of certain economic structures that have tried to deal with workers and wealth and, and all of that, things like capitalism, communism, you know, all of that, and kind of see where that goes. Um, before we get started, though, I think directly relating to this, an important question is, and speaking of, of communism, 
why is it that communists will not drink Earl Grey? <laughs> well, because I... because all property is theft. All right, that's it. That, that, that's the only one I'm going to do for today. That is the proper <laughs> response to a dad joke, everyone. No response at all. <laughs> Crickets. Oh, man. Um, but I, <laughs> I got a few thoughts, and I want to kind of save those for right now and see when or if they can come into the conversation uh, maybe a little bit later on. But I did have a couple of questions I'd like to kind of just put out on the table and break open. And Vince, you texted us earlier today when we were kind of group texting about this with a, a really great observation that in the Bible, work first appears prior to the fall. Mm -hmm. And I think that we often associate it with the, what we call the curses after the fall, Yes, in which God says to Adam, curse it as the ground for your sake. And then he goes on to explain to Adam that work's going to be really hard, you know, the, the tilling of the ground, and he's going to eat bread by the sweat of his brow. And yet, in the Genesis account, the command to tend and keep the garden, which is a form of work, happens before the fall. So it's not a result of sin. It seems that the futile and toilsome kind of work is a result of sin. Yes. Mm -hmm. And since you had brought that up, um, I think it's really, really great. Uh, and I think it means that work is, um, is not out of accord with human dignity because we're looking at it in this, this pre-fall state. I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that. What, what would you glean from this fact that man is given this task of work prior to the fall? Yeah, well, um, first of all, the, the way it's worded in Genesis is really interesting. Um, I was just double-checking myself here before we hit record, but Genesis chapter 2, you know, the second uh, creation narrative, and it the, the first time it mentions man in Genesis chapter 2, it says, but there is no man to till the earth. So mm. there seems to be like mm. right off the bat, this understanding that man is there to till the earth. And, and the um, earth needs man in some way, or it's yeah, not complete. Right, right. Right. And and so, and, and I think we should um, break open the idea of having dominion, mm -hmm. um, which is all part of that same package, right? Um, but yeah, so man is there to till the earth. And there's something in there uh, that would seem to imply that it's God wants man to work with him in bringing creation to its fulfillment. Yes. That if God, God made all of these things uh, in Genesis, and then he makes man to till the earth. And there seems to be some kind of implication like God makes man and then there's work to do. Mm -hmm. So not that God's... Um, creation is somehow imperfect um, or not good. But there is something in there that I'd like to hear you guys' thoughts on um, about how, yeah, human beings are meant to work with God in, in bringing creation yeah. to its full fulfillment. Boy, I've got some thoughts. You might want to jump in here real quickly <laughs> on this. Go, yeah. so, jump in. That's totally First good. of all, you're, I also have you're, some you're pointing out <laughs> that that the there was no man to till the ground. I had never never thought of that before. That that's happens very immediately. That that importance there. Uh, a couple of things I'd like to pull out from what you said is first of all, you you were saying this does not mean that God's creation is imperfect, and that's very true. It's not a matter of fixing something wrong. It's a matter of bringing to full flourishing that which is not yet developed. I think. Um, there's an interesting point here. 
Jesus Christ has this threefold office, right? And and we're we know this because we're told that we receive a share in it when we get confirmed. Priest, prophet, and king. Right. Christ is also the new or second Adam. Now we don't hear these terms applied to Adam, but they're actually there in the Genesis account. Hmm. Adam does appear as priest, prophet, and king. King is pretty obvious because he's told to have dominion, and that comes from, you know, Dominus Lord, right? This idea of lordship. So there is this idea that Adam is to be the lord or king of creation. Prophet, that one's interesting, um, but prophet doesn't mean just predicting the future. It's speaking forth the word of God. I think we find that in Adam naming the animals, Mm -hmm. right? Mm. But what about this idea of priest? What's well, really interesting because the very words for tend and keeping of the garden occur elsewhere in the Old Testament in reference to the Levitical duties of the priests in the tabernacle. Right, because the tabernacle itself or the tent of meeting was, was built, built on the pattern of the garden. Right. Right. So this is a priestly function. Well, and I, I had the opportunity quite recently to have a, a conversation with my mom about this. And my mom is not Catholic, so it was great to have like a cool conversation about Bible stuff that didn't like, you know, there was no disagreement really, just like kind of digging into things. That's always nice. Well, we just usually don't have those conversations, but it was really lovely. We think of priesthood as something that occurs only after the fall because we view priesthood as something that is related to um, offering sacrifices for sin. Mm -hmm. Well, if we have this priestly language predating the fall, then maybe we have missed the very core of what priesthood is. And so here, just very quickly, is, is what, I, what I'd like to share on this, and I think it ties in directly to your idea. Um, so priesthood does a couple of things. There is another type of sacrifice besides the sacrifice for sin, and that is the sacrifice of praise. So even in a world where sin has not yet existed, the sacrifice of praise can still be offered. And in fact, it should be offered. God is worthy to be praised just in his very nature. So it's one of our profound dignities that we have been allowed as conscious humans to be able to praise God. In fact, it's perhaps our profoundest dignity in a sense. I guess, well, and that that actually this connecting the dots with me um, about how the liturgy, that liturgy means the work of the people, that yes. there's something... Okay, yeah, I've not thought about this before, that there's a connection between work and priesthood, work and praise. I don't know, what, yeah. how would you... And that praise is our, like, most dignified work, which I think this yeah. is going to come full full circle back in our conversation. <clears throat> yes, because how many people have jobs that don't fulfill them, don't mm-hmm. bring any happiness or a sense of praise, but right. rather that sense of desperation or, or anger. Or the way in which we right. do them is not honoring or bringing praise to God. Mm. Right, and that's... And so how does this tie into priesthood and work then? Well, I I think it's precisely here. The two roles that I can see a priest having pre-fall is one, the offering of praise to God. And then secondly, priesthood is a form of mediatorship. It's a go-between, right? Between God and something not God. Okay. Think of the Genesis account now and think of natural creation. Every bit of nature praises God to some extent. Okay, brings glory to God in, to some extent. But things like rocks, for example, they don't do a whole lot of praising. The only way in which they praise God is simply by being precisely what he made them to be. A rock. A rock. 
it is those creatures that have free will and consciousness that can bring a deeper level of praise because we can make that choice to say, yes, I will praise and worship God. Um, but the other thing we need to notice about creation is that because it is finite, uh, because it is not the infinite perfect being, which is God, it tends to dissolution and decay. Um, I enjoy gardening a little bit. And I can tell you that a garden is nature and that's beautiful. But if I don't get those weeds out, it goes haywire yep. and things don't, the, the very things that we want in nature to be the best expressions of themselves, to be what they're made to be, don't happen unless man is around to help get them there. This goes back to your point that the world was not imperfect, but it needed a man to till the ground. So the priestly roles that I see for Adam is that he is the go-between between nature and God. And the point is that he is to help by his tending and keeping to make nature to flourish, to bring all of nature into an unending hymn of praise to its mm -hmm. creator. And that starts in the garden, but the rest of the world is waste and void, right? So had Adam not fallen, then his children and so forth would have taken over, the, spread over the whole world, mm -hmm. and they would have lifted all of creation <clears throat> up into this great hymn of praise to the creator. So maybe that's, a, is that kind of a thought that, that, do you think fits in there? Yeah, well, yeah. And actually, you know, now that I think about it, so that might explain at least in part why one of the, um, I hesitate to call them punishments because I don't think that's necessarily what they are, but the, the consequences Consequence, yeah. uh, of the fall is that work now becomes toil. So what, what was just tilling, which presumably would have been actually a joy mm -hmm. uh, for Adam now becomes toilsome. And that would make sense if you consider that man before the fall was perfectly united with God. And so his, um, his tending and keeping of the garden would have been joyful and also probably somewhat easy or at least mm -hmm easier yeah, because right. something uh, cosmic and uh and supernatural shifted after the fall as well right right, right. right. like actually like like we it's harder to grow things we like ruptured with creation yeah. itself yeah. which is why i mean death which we mentioned in the previous episode that cosmic obscenity of death happened as well it's right. this actual not just that we fell from god but all that god made and that was good. Yeah. And that's, yeah. Right. Well, it's the fall that messed it all up. I mean, work was meant to be a joy. And Dang it, Adam. I know. It's <laughs> so frustrating. Like, I was reading a, a book uh, called... Uh, these beautiful bones and everyday theology of the body. And that was what helped me to see that TOB was not just all about marriage and family and mm -hmm. sexuality, but it spoke of the deeper anthropological reality of just every other facet of human existence. Right. And so they talked about the dignity of work in this book and they they made it very obvious, like John Paul II even got into this, where man was not made for work. Work was made for man. And this is even reflected in, in this ref, uh, the gospel of Mark. The Sabbath was made for man, mm -hmm. not man for the Sabbath. And if we think of the Sabbath being connected to the liturgy, the liturgy is the work of the people, there's that reality that that in order for us to be truly satisfied, truly fulfilled, truly capable of praising God with the and reach our greatest capacity to praise Him in the work we do, we can't see 
our entire existence devoted to work, meaning our entire value cannot be summed up in what I do for society, but rather who I am uh, gives me a deep sense of purpose so that I can then live a lifestyle of happiness and joy and service to my fellow man, right? Do you think that's partly, though, due to the fall, that this work, which seems to be so essential to, to Adam, which occurs before the fall, um, well, you wouldn't want to sum up Adam's entire identity, is a big part of his identity, really, more so than we would say work is now. Yes. And I think, I think that goes back to the imago Dei, the image of God. God makes man in his own image. And that means many different things, you know, having a, a, a rational intellect, you know, th those kind of things, uh, being a community of persons, you know, male and female, he created them. But the, the quote, I brought some quotes today. I know we've got a bunch of quotes today that we're going to be hearing. And the ones I brought were maybe not from the most, you know, not from kind of the standard sources on this. Uh, I brought Dorothy Sayers. I'm a huge fan of Dorothy Sayers. Um, and I'll just say this very briefly in case anybody listening isn't super familiar with her. She is one of the great, was one of the great um, figures in British literature, Christian British literature, um, that we would kind of lump together maybe with some of those, those other major figures of the late 19th, early 20th century, like C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, uh, Ronald Knox, and so forth. I think she gets a bit forgotten compared to the rest, and she shouldn't be. Um, Anglican, uh, new C.S. Lewis, very brilliant, uh, woman, um, Oxford graduate and so forth. She had quite a bit to say about work. She's famous for writing detective fiction, you know, the Lord Peter Wimsey series, but her nonfiction and her theological stuff are really profound. So she has some things to say about work and I'm, I'm hopefully going to try to read some of those later on. But the reason I bring her up right now is she wrote a book called the mind of the maker and she, it's about creative work. And she takes this idea of the image of God from the perspective that as humans sharing in God's image, we have this desire to create. Never quite on God's level. We cannot create ex nihilo, right? Um, but we are kind of secondary level creators. And it's something that it, it's, it's like part of us, like we want to do this. Hmm. And she has some really cool sections in the book where she relates it to her, um, her work as an author. I'll just share this real quickly. It's totally off subject, but I love it. She says, as an author, you are in control of creating your characters in your book. But somehow, if you want to do the best quality art or work, you got to try to be a bit like God and give them free will. And uh, you'd not control so your characters and let them kind of live up to the, the character you've given them and not try to force your own beliefs and opinions and stuff on your characters. So you, and this creates better art than if you're trying to like mm. force something through. Um, and it's better art precisely because it is more godlike, you know, by giving your characters that free will. So I've always thought that was really cool. Mm. But do you think, guys, this really ties into this idea uh, that we're talking about with work is if part of the image of God that being like God is that creative power, uh, so to speak, and that desire. And then we tie that in with this idea of Adam, who is going to till and tend and keep. Um, he's the, the, the Lord of creation, but that lordship is not a lordship of 
making things subservient. That's how we view dominion now. But rather, he is to enter in with God into God's very creative work to make things flourish, to lift them up to their highest level. And what an amazing dignity that is. Yes. I mean, the word dominion isn't domination. That's the difference. Right. We were called to, me, to have dominion over Same the earth. Root, totally different meanings. Right. I, I was watching, strangely enough, Jurassic World, I think the third one or recently, and the I can't remember his dang name. He's in all of them, um, but he's well known. Um, he said... Uh, Chris Pratt? No, not Chris Pratt. Even going all the way back to the original Jurassic Park, he's still in them. I can't remember his name, but he only has bit parts in some yeah. of these. But he was giving a speech to his college students, and he literally was talking about how we don't have dominion. And it was the exact antithesis, the opposite. But, I mean, you think about it. If there were dinosaurs roaming the world, I guess it would make people think that. But <laughs> there's, I mean, there's some level, I mean, obviously in a fictional, that's absurd, but even in today's society, there are people who really do believe that we don't have dominion. We're not mm -hmm. called to do anything except actually serve creation and elevate it above humanity right. and care more about saving the planet than saving someone dying in the street. Right. But and, conversely, we're not supposed to abuse the planet either because that's, right. that's, exactly. that's domination, See, it's not, not dominion. Bingo. Mm -hmm. Right. Because you can till and, and, and mine for minerals in ways that are not respectful and not yeah. thoughtful of, I mean, think of pollution. I mean, a lot of people get way caught up in the global warming or climate change kind of narrative that can become distracting and extreme to the point where you mm -hmm. elevate creation as more important than human beings. And on one side, you can also become so focused on human beings, you utterly neglect and you are you are wasteful. You don't care about what you do. And I mean, people where, litter. That's where you get a super political polarization when things get taken to an extreme. Because, I mean, obviously right. things that we do as humans affect the climate. And then you you have a super radical uh, form of, of, you know, a very social and political approach to talking about this that is sometimes exaggerated and radicalized to such an extent that people uh, kind of flip to the opposite extreme and want to say, you know, deny it all or not worry about it all. And it's like, well, we are also supposed to be taking care of our, our planet. There, there is a balance here. Right. The word flourishing keeps, uh, that's that, I don't know that why I like that word so much, but that's, that's how we're supposed to treat this. The lordship of the planet is designed to make it better, not worse. Mm. And what just popped in my head, and then I know Vince, you want to interject here, um, was being a parent. You know, we are supposed to have some level of authority over our children, particularly when they're quite young. Eventually that lessens over time. But why that authority? Not so they can become free labor, I'll tell you no, that. No, exactly. <laughs> but isn't the whole point of the the older, hopefully wiser, more experienced parent having authority over them, isn't the point of that to be able to help that child to grow and flourish in good and healthy ways, not to say, you're my servant, go and do what I tell you to do. Right. And I think it's the same approach to creation. I mean, you look at the, the industrial revolution and the children in the mines, you yeah. know, all those it abuses. abuses. nature and humanity. Both. And humanity at the same time. So we need to have that healthy moderate moderation, right? It, it's integration. Yeah. I, I think the church in pretty much every issue, I say that slightly hesitatingly because I'm sure somebody will 
find, find some counterexample. <laughs> but in many social issues, the church is like finds itself stuck in between two crazy people. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I love that. That's it. Like, that's it. <laughs> it's you know the 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 golden mean. Oh, that's what uh, it is. You know, straight out of Aristotle. Uh, it's one of the things he absolutely got right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's not being wishy-washy or trying to please everybody. It's, no, it's not because, and you know, you know that you're in the golden mean, and you're not, you're not just some, uh, some squishy, like pushover. Yeah, pushover. <laughs> uh, when everybody hates you for it, and you <laughs> right. still stick to it, because yeah. it's not like well, when the crazy people the, on both sides hate you. When the right, crazy right. people on both sides hate you, you know you're <laughs> being think about, Catholic. <laughs> I mean, think it's about like. Rerum Novarum, which mm-hmm. we were going to get to, um, Pope Leo the Thirteenth encyclical published in eighteen ninety one on um, on the condition of labor. I think it was the title um, in English. The thing about Rerum Novarum is it. I mean, think about the the um, socio political context. You have you have the the industrial revolution going on you have the the kids in the mines and the kids in the factories mm-hmm. and there's environmental destruction and there's there's you know human suffering like ridiculous workers rights abuses all this stuff sure and that's really bad that's an that's a you know capitalism gone crazy sure yeah um and then on the other hand you have the the political response to that is socialism, Marxism. That's, that's, you know, you have the communist manifesto being handed out and and that's becoming super popular all over the world. So what does Pope Leo the 13th do? He issues Rerum Novarum and both sides hate him for it. Like (laughs) the, you know, the, um, the business class, like they, thought he was like a crazy liberal. Yeah. Um, and I mean, read Rerum Navarum. He rips into socialism. Yeah. Um, and he finds this golden mean that is, I'm just like, yeah, no, this is actually the, this is actually the best take, you know, that we can't be abusing our workers, but we also can't be abolishing private property right. and kicking the church out of public discourse and all of this stuff that comes along with the socialism. A lot of people may not realize this, but the popes uh, over this last century plus have been pretty good about dishing it out to both uh, extreme socialism and extreme capitalism on both sides. It's not a one-sided, you know, kind of thing. Even John Paul II, after communism fell, the Soviet Union fell, he immediately recognized the dictatorship of relativism that it infected even capitalistic governments, right? And the the materialism, the secularization of society that becomes its own form of communism, right? It's a dictatorship. So that's interesting you should mention that. Um, There's a book. It's written by Bishop Fulton Sheen, but it's not one of his better known books at all. Uh, If you can find a copy of it, uh, it's probably out of print. Read it. It's great. It's called uh, Communism and the Conscience of the Christian West, Bishop Fulton Sheen. He says something interesting in there. Well, he says a lot of interesting things, but he makes the case that uh, communism and capitalism, and and by capitalism, he he's very clear to say that he's talking about laissez-faire capitalism, yep. leave it alone capitalism, let it run unchecked, exactly. let greed take over, right? 
that laissez-faire capitalism and and communism, far from being polar opposites, are actually cousins of each other. And mm -hmm. he shows this for two reasons. One is because the unchecked, greedy style of capitalism uh, leads to a, an oppression of the workers, which makes them therefore almost guaranteed they're going to do the revolution thing and look for something like socialism. But even beyond that, he points out that you're you're running into high levels of um, monopolies at this point, right? Mm -hmm. It was a handful of corporations or very wealthy people in control of most private the narrative, property. yeah. And so capitalism is, you know, we're always like, you know, yay for private property. But when capitalism goes to this extreme, he says there's not really a lot of difference between that and communism. Communism, property is vested in the hands of the state. In this laissez-faire capitalism, it's invested in the hands of a few corporations. They're not that radically different. What happens in both cases, 90% of people wind up without private property. Yeah, I mean, I... I um... My gosh. And, and you, you could really get into the weeds with that yeah. theoretically and... Um... You know, I, I was doing a study of anarchism at, at one point. Um, so, you know. Like political anarchism or yeah, philosophical which is, anarchism. Which yeah. is pretty interesting and weird rabbit hole to go down, I'll say. Which? But uh, the all property is theft thing. Forget yeah. my stupid joke earlier. That was, uh, <laughs> um, everybody says, like, I, the joke says communist, but it was not actually Marxist. So that it was uh, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, the French uh, economist who was an anarchist and the first person to call himself an anarchist, I think. Mm -hmm. He was a friend of Marx's for a while, but that was his line that property is theft. Interesting. Yeah. I am. Um, oh my. I think the, the more obvious uh, similarity between um, the, this, this kind of capitalism that we're talking about mm -hmm. and which, which I will, um, I'll go ahead and call, um, profit driven mm -hmm. i guess uh it's it's hard because semantics gets so sticky when you talk about this um so like you know all these terms are super loaded and depending sure. on who's listening they might think well yeah different everybody ideas. has different perceptions but, of the words you mean which is why i i may go ahead and just read it i have this the day is now far spent by uh cardinal Seurat. um why don't you read that? To get it's that a pretty long yeah. book to read on camera, right? right. <laughs> yeah, I. Um, well, I think we'd be reading a so bunch of great quotes today. For, so yeah, let's go ahead. Yeah. For folks who who don't know, Cardinal Seurat, um, he is from Guinea, I believe. He's an African cardinal, and so he has um, he has a really interesting perspective on the West as a non-Westerner, mm -hmm. um, and I. I, I read this book a couple of years ago, and I found his take to be very refreshing as like someone from the outside looking in and being able to kind of fairly critique uh, where the West maybe has has gone astray. We forget that the whole um, world is not Western sometimes, yeah, and right. there are other perspectives. But um, so anyways, this is what he says, um, and remind me to go back to the point about where communism and this kind of capitalism are similar because okay, this, yeah. this leads into that, but I might get myself off track because sure. it's what I do. Um, he says, <laughs> I often have the feeling that the material well-being of the West was acquired at the price of a sort of moral decline of the populations. 
Therefore, it is necessary to state clearly the distinction between an economy founded on freedom of enterprise and a capitalist system founded on the profit motive. Economic freedom implies our responsibility as men before God and our fellow citizens. It is not an absolute without rules or limits. It is at the service of everyone's good. Its objective is the friendship of all in the civilization. It must therefore be regulated by a certain sobriety and temperance, or else it becomes blind and violent. A freedom that aims only at profit ends up destroying itself. And this, this perfectly captivates, I think, the heart of John Paul II in his encyclical Laborum Exercens, right? Which I think he wrote and released on the anniversary of Rerum Nevavrum. I can't remember. But regardless, he said, work is a good thing for man, a good thing for his humanity, because through work, man not only transforms nature, adapting it to his own needs, but he also achieves fulfillment as a human being. Mm -hmm. And indeed, in a sense, becomes more a human being like the greatest version of ourselves, right? And so to me, like that sense of the purpose of work and the purpose of government, the purpose of any form of, uh, of things that give profit or produce some kind of product, those things are meant to serve humanity, but not humanity in some ambiguous blob of people that mm-hmm. doesn't mean... The I'm talking collective. About the, yeah. Right, the yes. vague collective is not what we're talking about. We're talking about individual human beings that have real lives, real needs. It doesn't mean one person can't sacrifice themselves for the good of others, mm-hmm. right? And give of themselves, right? But that doesn't mean that needs to be forced or mandated, by a corporation or a or a government of any kind, mm. right? That's critical. And well, and, that, and so that's kind of what I was kind of getting to uh, with the where this kind of capitalism that Cardinal Seurat was talking about, right? Um, where that falls into the same error as socialism or communism, which is that it reduces the person to an economic unit. Yes. So it. Yes. Redu- so in other words, in both systems. Um, taken as an ideology and a way through which to view the world, which is how most people who would adhere to one or the other would treat them. Um, an individual is only worth their economic output. Mm-hmm. So if you can't produce X number of widgets in a month, right, so to speak, um, then you know you're you're worthless, and then we will punish you in X, Y, or Z mm-hmm. way. Instead of like, no, you're you have inherent dignity and worth. Right. Let's as... find your skills. Let's find your gifts. Like what is the best you can, you know. But know. even if you can't do anything, even exactly. if you're, even you if you're still completely, have inherent dignity. yeah, I mean, even if, I think everybody has yeah. some sort of gift or something to give, yeah. but um, that's not. It may not be in the that, form of work. That doesn't always have economic value or right. something you can put a price tag on. And- oh, gosh. You know, what you're saying speaks to my own personal experience. Uh, and this was 10 years ago. I remember coming into college, there's this mentality of, you know, whatever degree you have, I'm sure it's the same. But produce, 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 create, right. create, create, do, do, do. And we've reduced education to an economic function. Right, right. And I felt that, yeah. you know, and I was in school for broadcast journalism. So it was always the next story, making another video, doing this or that. Uh, and it was like, 
constantly being on. And if you weren't producing a video, then there wasn't any value to you. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I was even creating that mentality in my own lifestyle of different things I was producing for different Catholic apostolates, summer camps, youth conferences. Uh, even when I was in seminary for the three months I was there, I made a video of their soccer tournament at St. Meinrad and, uh, pre presented it to a lot of the seminarians. Very exciting time. But then there was another uh, event within a month of that. And I've never forgotten this. It was one of the most formative moments of my life at that point. I asked one of the older seminarians, I guess, uh, or leaders there, because it was like some festival of different cultures, like different food from all the seminarians who were from different parts of the world were cooking or something. You got a taste of that. And it was really cool. And so much different colors and things. I was like, I should video this. I should. And in my mind, because I had made this soccer video, I had created this paradigm that, well, that's what I do. That's my value. That's who I am. And I was I even identifying with that. That's how I view you, John, is as a soccer video. Thanks, man. Yeah, so so I asked so I asked the guy, hey, do you want me to make a video? He said, no, no, no. Just be here. Hmm. Just be here. You don't have to worry about recording it. Just enjoy it. Yeah. That was like, what? That I that's okay? You don't need every single thing documented just because I have the capacity to do that? Like that? is huge, which has given me the ability to do the work I do today right. without feeling like who I work for or what I do, like my only value comes from those things, right. those skills, right? There's something deeper yeah. Yeah, that propels me. We're human beings, not human doings. Bingo. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Um, let me try here at this moment to kind of sum up some of the thoughts that we've had, because at the very beginning, we said that the dignity of work has to flow from the dignity of, of being human, right? Whatever that means. And so I think beginning with our conversation with Genesis, here's some points that I think may be really good takeaways. Humans have dignity and value because they're made in the image of God. Um, God made everything good, right? So also all the rest of creation has dignity and value. Um, and this, this thing is going to tie directly into how we treat the world. So in working, man made in the image of God, and this is in the pre-fall, this is the ideal, right? We have to keep in mind that we live post-fall. So we can strive for that ideal to some extent, provided we recognize that it will not be perfect in this life. Right. Um, so that would mean a couple of things. It would mean that man made in the image of God, that his work would entail several things. First of all, he would love the stuff he's working with because it's also the handiwork of God. Mm -hmm. So there's automatically that respect for the creation. You know, he wouldn't need somebody to say, stop dumping oil into the oceans, right? You would right. automatically have that respect. Secondly, the purpose of his work is not an economic function, but rather to make, uh, to bring praise to God. It's an act of thanksgiving to God for his gift of life. This is like a way of offering praise back. Mm. And then thirdly, that he enters into the creative process of God by making things flourish, right? By doing the work God didn't finish, if that makes sense, to go back to your point. So these are three really key points. But then the fall happens. 
And so we do have to work to eat. We do have to work to live. But that doesn't mean that this situation needs to be abused. Right. We don't live in paradise here. There is no such thing as a worker's paradise. You know, sorry, Karl Marx. We're not going to find that here, either in communism or in Christianity. It's not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that we should turn a blind eye to the abuses we see around us. We need to at least strive, and the church and the popes recently have really been trying to guide people this way, to get us back to understanding why we're working, you know, to try to imbue it with love and praise of God and flourishing all this stuff again. Knowing that, of course, there will always be those times when somebody, a perfectly good, decent person, is in a, stuck in a job they hate just to feed their family, right? I mean, that's going to happen in this life. Sure. But it can be, these these uh, situations can be greatly reduced if we go back to understanding that. So I, I see mankind made in the image of God, doing work in order to bring nature to flourishing, in order to offer praise and thanksgiving to God. And it's an act of love for God and an act of love for God's creation. I think those maybe are pretty foundational points. I'd what say. Would you say? Yeah, I mean, I have one highly theoretical question that might derail the conversation. And if oh, it will, these. feel free to... I will not allow the derail. No, it's okay. Go. Because okay. I'm kind of just like going off the cuff here too. Yeah, so well, derail away. So what you were just saying, something in there just made me think. So, you know, we have work before the fall. So mm -hmm. there's obviously work at the beginning of creation before man sins and introduces sin and death into the world. Purely speculatively, do you think, either of you, and I've not thought about this, maybe I'll have an answer, but do you think that there will be work in the resurrection of the dead? That at the at the end of time, at the general resurrection, will there be work? If, and here's, work, and here, if work is liturgy, then yes. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but not like the kind of tending and keeping, I guess, because wouldn't creation be, and this is kind of where perfected I'm thinking, wouldn't creation be to grow. perfected, brought to its fruition, there's no more development at that point, or am I, am I off track? Well, I know that Christ still ate food in the resurrection. Did he need to? I think that was Probably for our no. sake. For our sake, right? Yeah. To prove that he wasn't a ghost. Yeah. But yet the desire, the enjoyment of food, right? The taste, the meal, the communal meal, being able to, uh, to be together is possibly likely part of the resurrection, right? Um, also, just the idea of working... Uh, working with a sense of like the communion of saints. I mean, we ask them to pray for us even today, right? And we believe at the end of time that that's, I mean, I guess when the world is ended and everyone is either in heaven or hell and that's it, mm -hmm. will we need intercession? No. no but right? right now those saints are enjoying the beatific vision, meaning they're at rest, but they're still working. Right, so it's a work without without toil. Work when they're interceding toil, for us, I believe is what we're looking for. And so I think, I, I first of all, I think I cannot answer your question. I think it, yeah. it's it's <laughs> it's speculative, but I don't mean that in a bad way. Right, like it's it's actually a fascinating speculation. I just don't have any like I don't remotely have yeah, any clear like, thing on that. I literally just threw that at you but right here's, then. But here's so. something. But the idea has kind of occurred to me before. So here's just another thought. I mean, this just kind of seems cool to me. So. In the resurrection, and St. Paul talks about the creation having been subjected to futility or vanity, right? 
uh, awaiting the revelation or, or something like that of the sons or children the of God. Coming of the sons. Coming of sons of God, right? God. Mm. So does that mean that creation is, and we hear about a new heaven, a new earth, right? But does that mean that it is holy and completely fixed and righted and completed like that? Or to your point, will we, without sweat and toil, have uh, be involved in the work of renewing and restoring the earth? I don't know. It Think might of, be. Oh, gosh. And I kind of actually dig the idea because I mentioned yeah. I like gardening earlier. Now, gardening is is difficult. I mean, I love nature. I love gardening. I love taking walks in the woods and all this. And I thought, I thought, you know, what if in the world to come, it's like it never stops the process of flourishing. And like, okay. Like it I'm, just gets better and better. Yeah. Uh -huh. And like, like okay, so one, thing's, one of the problems I have with the garden is I'm weeding and I know I've got uh, a time frame. I got to get done because I got to go to work or, you know, put the kids to bed or something like that. That causes me stress and anxiety. Right. And I therefore don't tend to do a good job. Well, what if... Time didn't when matter. When you've got all of eternity to perfectly <laughs> pluck the one weed and to perfectly tamp the dirt around and make sure this leaf gets right and you propped up that little guy, you know... And you don't have that stress anymore, and then you watch it bloom, and I don't have to fix the whole world at once. I can work on my little plot and my little flower bed right now. There's something really very compelling about that idea. Mm -hmm. so I know it's speculative, but I kind of like it. Well, so, it's it's know. it's yeah. built into our humanity, right? Like who we are as people. We need to be part of the earth, not to worship the earth as mm -hmm. the source of all things, but rather the the great sacramental visible sign of God's providence, right? We have the world. The earth is the only seemingly inhabited planet in the universe that we know of. How many of you have read one of Tolkien's greatest works? Leaf by Niggle. No, I've heard of it. I want to. It sounds so insane. It's like, what is this? It's very well known. It's a little short story he wrote, and it's kind of more or less about purgatory. Mm. Um, and the reason I bring it up is because I feel like he hints at this possibility in it. Um, there's an artist who is not a terribly nice guy. He's not really friendly to his neighbor. He's kind of selfish, kind of grumpy, whatever. <laughs> Excuse me. And... Is there in the story, he does do a good deed for his neighbor during a difficult time, perhaps a bit grudgingly, but he does it. And um, he gets sick. It's bad weather and he catches pneumonia and eventually dies. It's not clear immediately that he has died. He just kind of wakes up in this half awake, hears voices, seems to be on a train. Everything's dark and he hears people talking and arguing about him. Mm. And it eventually becomes clear that he's... He's in the afterlife. He's being judged. And there's a, a voice that's very much a voice of justice listing all of the how dreadful he was. And there's a very kind voice saying, yes, but remember the, the how kind he was to his neighbor that, that one last time? And this is obviously the voice of Jesus. And uh, So he goes through this purgatorial process. But one of the key things is he was working on this potential masterpiece. And I'm trying to remember how this played out. I believe he had to break it up the canvas and the board to fix his neighbor's like leaking roof during the storm or something. Right. So he had to damage his own art. Uh, but there was this beautiful leaf that he had drawn. It was just absolutely amazing. This is hence leaf by Niggle. His name was Niggle. At the end, he does make it to heaven though. It's not stated in so many words, uh, but he, he walks into this beautiful countryside and it's gorgeous and he loves it. And he keeps thinking, man, this looks really familiar. I know that tree. 
And he goes around the corner. He's like, there should be another tree here. Oh, there is a tree there. Why is it right there? And he starts realizing it's, it's his painting. Hmm. And he's kind of informed that this is um, based on the realities of what he had done on Earth to some extent. But if I remember the end correctly, it's been years since I've, I have uh, read it. I believe that it gets a little vague and he is told these are the parts you hadn't filled in yet. Right? Like there's still mm. more painting to do to fill in your landscape. So anyway, That's it's beautiful. interesting. Yeah, it's almost it's like a Tolkien's story. take on the great divorce. Like, oh, I'll, yeah. I'll up you one C.S. Lewis. No. <laughs> so speaking of which, we're not speaking of that. Um, and I know I've probably been talking way too much. This has been really cool. I would like to read a quick quote, and then maybe this would be a good time for a short break. Yeah, let's sure. do it. Cool. So Vince, you're talking about Rerum Novarum and how that comes about um, as a response on the part of the Pope to multiple abuses, both uh, in terms of excessive capitalism and some of the uh, the socialist responses that were also not in keeping with the dignity of, of man. Um, industrial revolution and all this period of time leading up to the late 19th century and early 20th century, then we have the world wars, there's a lot going on. <laughs> so I mentioned Dorothy Sayers earlier. About one year into Britain's involvement in World War II, she gave a talk called Why Work, and uh, this was, I believe it was a talk originally, but she published this in a, a compilation where she was kind of critiquing the way the church, and she was thinking of the Anglican church, was maybe not handling things in society the best, and it was called Letters to a Diminished Church. And where she goes with this is precisely the Catholic concept of work. Um, work is something beyond just a mere ac economic factor, right? She really wants to elevate the ideal of work again, mm -hmm. to, to imbue it with dignity uh, yet again. But I just want to read a couple of, of sections out of this that I've highlighted because what she says is at a certain date in history, but it's not dated at all. It right. is so practical right now. So she says, um, In reference to work, I ask that it should be looked upon not as a necessary drudgery to be undergone for the purpose of making money, but as a way of life in which the nature of man should find its proper exercise and delight, and so fulfill itself to the glory of God. I mean, this is precisely what we've been saying. That it should, in fact, be thought of as a creative activity undertaken for the love of the work itself, and that man, made in God's image, should make things as God makes them for the sake of doing well a thing that is well worth doing. Now, the bit, the, the slightly longer bit I wanted to read here is she is asking uh, people to notice that in the first year since entering World War II, things have changed, right? The economy and our outlook on work. And so this is a couple of paragraphs, but uh, this is so worth hearing. Get comfortable, everyone. A society in which consumption has to be artificially stimulated in order to keep production going is a society founded on trash and waste, and such a society is a house built upon sand. It is interesting to consider for a moment how our outlook has been forcibly changed for us in the last 12 months by the brutal presence of war. War is a judgment that overtakes societies when they have been living upon ideas that conflict too violently with the laws governing the universe. 
People who would not revise their ideas voluntarily find themselves compelled to do so by the sheer pressure of the events which these very ideas have served to bring about. Never think that wars are irrational catastrophes. They happen when wrong ways of thinking and living bring about intolerable situations, and whichever side may be the more outrageous in its aims and the more brutal in its methods, the root causes of conflict are usually to be found in some wrong way of life in which all parties have acquiesced, and, which, and for which everybody must, to some extent, bear the blame. It is always strange and painful to have to change a habit of mind, though when we have made the effort we may find a great relief even a sense of adventure and delight in getting rid of the false and returning to the true. Can you remember, and it is already getting difficult to remember, what things were like before the war? The stockings we bought cheap and threw away to save the trouble of mending, the cars we scrapped every year to keep up with the latest fashion and engine design and streamlining, the bread and bones and scraps of fat that litter the dustbins not only of the rich but of the poor, the empty bottles that even the dustman scorned to collect, because the manufacturers now found it cheaper to make new ones than to clean the old. The mountains of empty tins that nobody found it worthwhile to salvage, rusting and stinking on the refuse dumps. The food that was burnt or buried because it did not pay to distribute it. The land choked and impoverished with thistle and ragwort because it did not pay to farm it. The handkerchiefs used for paint rags and kettle holders. The electric lights left blazing because it was too much trouble to switch them off. The fresh peas we could not be bothered to shell and threw aside for something out of a tin. The paper that cumbered the shelves and lay knee-deep in the parks and littered the seats of railway trains. The scattered hairpins, the smashed crockery, the cheap knick-knacks of steel and wood and rubber and glass and tin that we bought to fill in an odd half-hour at Woolsworth's and forgot as soon as we had bought them. The advertisements imploring and exhorting and cajoling and menacing and bullying us to glut ourselves with things we did not want in the name of snobbery and idleness and sex appeal. And the fierce international scramble to find in helpless and backward nations a market on which to fob off all the superfluous rubbish which the inexorable machines ground out hour by hour to create money and to create employment. Do you realize how we have had to alter our whole scale of values? Now that we are no longer being urged to consume, but to conserve, we have been forced back to the social morals of our great-grandparents. When a piece of lingerie costs three precious coupons, we have to consider not merely its glamour value, but how long it will wear. When fats are rationed, we must not throw away scaps, scraps, but jealously use to advantage what it costs so much time and trouble to breed and rear. When paper is scarce, we must, or we should, think whether what we have to say is worth saying before writing or printing it. When our life depends on the land, we have to pay in short commons for destroying its infertility by neglect or overcropping. When a haul of herrings takes valuable manpower from the forces and is gathered at the peril of men's lives by bomb and mine and machine gun, we suddenly read a new significance into those gloomy words which appear so often in the fishmonger's shop, no fish today. Um, so I'm going to skip and then get down to the last bit of this. She goes on to talk about how this superfluous nature of our economic production in which we force people or advertise to people to buy what they don't need just in order to keep the machine going. She says, the war hasn't actually stopped that. As a consumer, our attitude has changed. But the war has not stopped this overproduction from happening. And she says this, do not let us imagine that a wartime economy has stopped waste. It has not. It is only transferred elsewhere. The glut and waste that used to clutter our own dustbins has been removed to the field of battle. 
That is where all the surplus consumption is going. The factories are roaring more loudly than ever, churning out night and day goods that are of no conceivable value for the maintenance of life. On the contrary, their sole object is to destroy life. And instead of being thrown away, they are being blown away. In Russia, in North Africa, over-occupied France, in Burma, China, the Spice Islands, and on the Seven Seas. So what is going to happen when the factories stop turning out armaments? No nation has yet found a way to keep the machines running and whole nations employed under modern industrial conditions without wasteful consumption. For a time, a few nations could contrive to keep going by securing a monopoly of production and forcing their waste onto new and untapped markets. When there are no new markets and all nations are industrial producers, the only choice we have been able to see so far has been that between armaments and unemployment. She nailed that because that is exactly still continuing in the world today. Yeah. So I'm starting to read that at such length, but no, I thought I, that was I would love to really have a good. copy of it. It's yeah. it's magnificent. What was the name of that talk? Um, why Work. And what year? Why Work. Early 1940s, well, the year after Britain got into the war. Right. So we're talking right after World War II. And, and you think of before World War II, it was a Great Depression, mm -hmm. right? So in your mind, it's like, how are they wasting? But what we're talking about is what led to World War II, the Great Depression. What led to the Great Depression? The 1920s and all the, the, the intense industrialization of the early 1900s. I mean, but think of not, the pride of Titanic did and not all World of War II, that. To some extent, at least here, you know, help bring us out of the Great Depression. This goes back to her point that... War can serve as an economic boom by getting people back working again. Right. Doesn't mean it should be used for that reason. But then what happens when it stops? Where does this new surplus go? How do we keep these factories going? And this is where you get into armaments, the arms race, and all of this. I mean, I think she was almost prescient in, in writing this. She was yes. really on target. Yes. I think yeah. it's uh, the perfect thing to, to let our, our viewers sit with right yeah. now as we go to that break. And then I want to get into some of the after effects or really even the things that were going on when she was even writing this. Yeah. This so. brings us right up into modern times yeah. and seeing how that greed... Uh, that sort of excess of capitalism leads to this well, overproduction, even the un this sustainability that we're facing. And today. it's all because we don't understand what work is for. It goes back to what you were saying, Vince, of this hyper-profit-driven model um, that it's no longer either for art for art's sake, nor is it for you know survival, but it's become something entirely different and, and I think that's where we run into trouble. So, yes, let's let all that sink in for a moment. We'll take a short break. We'll top up our water glasses and come back to you all right after this. Hey, everyone. This week's episode is sponsored by Family Renewal Project. FRP is a local theology of the body apostolate in service to the Archdiocese of Louisville. They're dedicated to renewing the culture through the renewal of the family. They have so many amazing things going on, so check them out at FamilyRenewalProject.com. All right, welcome back to uh, this episode where we've been talking about work, dignity of work, uh, dignity of human persons. We've gotten our waters topped up, ready to resume the conversation. That's right. So uh, just a super quick recap is, you know, we talked a little bit about human dignity, man made in the image of God. We talked about how before the fall, uh, work could be viewed in that light, um, where it's not so perfect now. But we also see that oftentimes workers can become abused by certain economic and political forms, you know, structures that are in place. And that also with that, we tend to 
um, I think, forget what the point of work is, right? It just, whether we're in a good or bad economy, we just work for, to make money, right? <laughs> you know, or to survive. Well, we've been conditioned to the five-day, 40-hour work week, which yeah. is just standard expectation. Now, it doesn't mean we sh- can't, we, we still have to meet those expectations, but now we have to do so with a different mentality. Yeah, and it's a question of why, like why we're working. Is it survival may be necessary? Nothing wrong with that. Um, and yet, is that all work is? So again, or is making a profit going beyond survival? Is that the point of work? And so I think what we're kind of been hinting at is that neither one of these is really the ideal point of work, right? So what, what is, you know, what does the Catholic Church have to say about this? And I, I just read that little bit before the break from Dorothy Sayers, and she was showing, and many people in the 1800s and the 1900s post-Industrial industrial Revolution were very keenly aware of how greed and, and excess had taken advantage of many people. Um, a lot of factory labor, child labor, poor working conditions, rampant poverty, um, Hilaire Belloc in his wonderful little book, uh, The Servile State, makes the point that with the Industrial Revolution, the factories were able to mass produce and undersell um, the the small artisans who went out of business because of that. But the part we don't think about is they then had to go get work. So who do they work for? The only available job is to work at the factory. So then they're also increasing the productivity of the factory, which gives the factory more buying power. And we have this vicious snowball mm. effect, right? Um, so we see that, and it, it's really tragic. And then in the 19th century, um, and, and in some extent, this goes all the way back to the 18th century of the French Revolution. But in the 19th century, we see the rise of, of Marxism and similar similar thoughts as a way to combat that. And on the surface, a lot of this sounded really positive. You know, we're, we're fighting for the workers. We're going to give the workers their, their just dues. And I come prepared today to talk a little bit about the philosophies behind Marxism, and I don't think we have time for it today. So I think it could oh, be gosh, its own, its its own, its own episode. episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna table that. But I think what is worth noting here is that there are extremes which we have to avoid as Catholics, right? We we can't be Marxists. That's church's te- teaching is clear on this. We're also not supposed to abuse the worker. We're not supposed to be. Uh, you know, greed is one of the seven deadly sins. Um, there's all kinds of things here we need to avoid, and this is very clear in church teaching. And um, I think this is a thought I've had. I don't know if this is, you know, maybe I'm just kind of making this up, but I, I feel as if the history of the 20th century overly informs our understanding here because after World War II, you have the rise of the Cold War. Right. Which sees the West viewed as the good guys being pitted against communism, justifiably viewed as the bad guys. Um, but inherent in that was this this Cold War between capitalism and communism. And because communism was such a real threat at times, and because we're viewing ourselves as the good guys. Capitalism be, looks like it's the good thing. Exactly. That and you it want, also right? looks like the only alternative to communism. And this is where I would want to disagree. I think what happened was the Cold War gave us this artificial false dichotomy of only these two cho- two choices our form of capitalism or communism right or some form of socialism 
And I don't think that's right, actually. I think there, there's more. Um, so the only thing I wanted to say before you know, hearing your all thoughts on this is earlier on in the 19th century, largely inspired by um, some of the excesses of uh, capitalism and some of the inherent flaws in the philosophy of socialism and very directly influenced by rerum novarum. Um, an idea was born in England, which was talked about, attempted a couple of times, but maybe not perfectly pursued or refined. And that was a notion called distributism. Two of the better known champions of it were Hilaire Belloc and G.K. Chesterton. So it's often received the name of Chester Belloc distributism. Uh, Fulton Sheen uh, was pretty supportive of it as well some decades later. Um, it kind of ties in a little bit with Schumacher's Small is Beautiful Economics. And I'm not going to delve into this uh, right now except to say one key factor of it. It's very big on the notion of private property. And the word distributism, I think, may be uh, a bad word to use because it sounds like distributing wealth, like a, a sort of socialist principle. Mm -hmm. And that was exactly the opposite of what they meant. They were talking about the distribution of the tools of production. And so what happens often is in both socialism and in capitalism, you wind up with the means of production being vested in the hands of a very few people, the yes. state or a couple of corporations or factories, Media right? Being exactly. a big thing. Right. And so to the, the distributists who were by and large Catholics and very influenced by Rerum Novarum and the, and the popes of that time, the idea of distributing wealth was wrong. You didn't take somebody's stuff and give it around, right? Um, they were big believers in private property, but they also saw the abuses of capitalism, the laissez-faire capitalism. And so by distribute, what they wanted to do was to actually promote more private ownership. So where the tools of productions were vested in the hands of individuals more than in corporations or in the state. Um, it was an idea that needed work, of course. Um, there was a couple of small communities tried to actually live this out, almost on old medieval guild principles and see oh what happened. Right? So some cool stuff to talk about there some other day. Sure. Um, so, Vince, going over to you, because I know you had some quotes from Rerum Novarum to read. Uh, maybe talk to private property. How does private property help us find this middle road between the excesses of capitalism and socialism? Mm. <clears throat> well, so going back to human nature and you know where that comes from um so pope leo the 13th talks about um how private property rights are an essential part of the uh, natural law how essentially they're only fitting they only come forth from it so he talks about how you know if Wealth is generated, and wealth generally has to be generated. It doesn't just like come out of nowhere. Um, somebody has to work to create wealth. It would seem that the wealth that is generated by right belongs to the person who generated it. And then that would constitute his private property. And then that person could, so he talks about like he could say make if you just want to put it in terms of money he makes money that money is well we could get really into the, the weeds of what money is and how that all works but sure. you know, that money in a sense is representative of some measure of goods so you could put that into land for example and that would 
constitute his wealth and be representative of of the wealth that he has earned, that he has generated, that is his by right. Um, but he also talks about how the the socialists have it wrong because the socialists, what they want to do is to actually take away something like land, mm -hmm. the means of production, um, and just make it so that the, the wealth that's generated is not privately owned. It's not first owned by the person who generated it, but rather it's owned by this sort of conglomerate. Um, I don't know if you want to get into the, the bit about you know, human versus animal and rationality. I don't, I don't know how far down that rabbit hole we want to go. I think but. it's good to at least read the quote because what's, what's great there is that he gives a natural law defensive of private mm. property. We, many of us like the idea of private property if we have it and right. we hate it if we're poor and don't have it, but we might think it's just a matter of somebody's whim or philosophy. We may not know right. there's a real kind of underpinning reason behind it. So yeah, if you want to read that, maybe we may not, you know, have time to talk about it a lot, but at least read it, let people kind of ponder it. I think it's it's worthwhile. Yeah, I think that'd be worthwhile. Yeah. So this is so this is an excerpt out of paragraph six of Rerum Navarum. Um, so he's continuing off of paragraph five, but he says, "What is of far greater moment, however, is the fact that the remedy they, the socialists, propose, is manifestly against justice." For every man has by nature the right to possess property as his own. Um, and on the very account that man alone among the animal creation is endowed with reason, it must be within his right to possess things not merely for temporary and momentary use as other living things do, but to have and to hold them in stable and permanent possession. He must have not only things that perish in the use, but also those which, though they have been reduced into use, continue for further use in after the time. So to take the land as an example, animals don't own land in the same way that we do. You know, for the most part, they're going to go around and eat the foods that are available to them right now, uh, which they need. And therefore, they have a right to that to some extent. But man, as a, as a conscious, uh, rational being... Um, he can take the land and use it and plan for the future and he can build a future off of that. And so there, there's an aspect, um, you know, correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but it seems as if he's saying there's an aspect of the, the higher nature of the human, which gives him a right to a greater sense of ownership because of what he can do with it with his higher nature. Yes. If that makes sense. Uh, no, that's, that's said way better than I would have articulated. Yeah, well, so thank you. <laughs> well, thanks. I wasn't sure if I was Very good. Very saying good. it. But I think uh, we need to also keep in balance here. There are There is an order of rights. There's levels to our rights. Uh, some supersede others at certain times. And I think what maybe the socialists were feeling is, you know, everybody's got a right to live. And they didn't, they saw, justifiably saw abuses of some people gathering so much stuff to themselves that nobody else could really reasonably live. And that's a very legitimate uh, complaint. And so I think to balance this in Catholic teaching, we realize that the first of our natural rights is the right to life. Okay. And that, that trumps the right to private property. 
doesn't mean it denies the right to private property. And that's the difference between what Pope Leo is saying and the socialists were saying. Thomas Aquinas himself actually argued that theft in case of necessity is not a sin at all. Right. right. I mean, someone who steals bread to feed his family. Right. Because so it may be important. your bread, and we can say under normal circumstances, your natural right is the right of private property. I can't touch your bread. Right. But if we're looking at a case of I have tried all other options, my family is dying or I'm starving to death, then my right to life temporarily trumps your right to private property and I can take your bread if you won't give it to me. Yes. Right. So I think we do need to kind of keep that in check that the Catholic Church also does teach that as well. Isn't that the entire premise of Les Miserables? You know, he stole bread and was in prison for 19 years and it's this entire journey of what he did. And I mean, his... His success, story of success, was actually putting people to work after that, yeah. right? He owned a business, a factory. Yeah. Um, he, he tried He tried his best to treat those workers right. And he tried his best to treat them right. And that was a the, the whole story. I feel like I feel like we should do an entire episode on, on Lamez. That would be we, we, we could, beautiful. Yeah. Number two, so four, six, I watched it again. Yeah. I watched it a few years ago, but it's like, gosh, I love that thing. Well, um, um, but what, yeah. what you said, Isaac, also reminded me that we have to – we have rights and then we have corresponding responsibilities. So yes. talking about, um, and that is just in accord with our nature. You know, a rational creature has rights to things that a creature that's, uh, as uh, Pope Leo says in his encyclical, a brute, mm-hmm. um, does not. Right. And just by virtue of the fact that we can actually make something of it, and we're the kind of creature that... Uh, can but then of course that comes with the responsibilities we can't abuse that right right which is kind of tying back in what we were saying about dominion mm-hmm. um why dominion is not domination really that's what the author of genesis is getting to that yeah by by virtue of the fact that we're rational creatures we have a right to private property but we also don't have the we, the right is not license right. to right. Um, to abuse that and and hold it over other people or to right greed that sort with, of thing. With what great we power do comes it. great responsibility. Yeah. Thank you, Spider Man. Thank you, Spider Man. I know my my ten year old would love that. He's a huge Spider Man fan. Yes. Uh, but it, it's interesting you should mention that because I I was uh, referencing Fulton Sheen's book Communism and the Conscience of the Christian West earlier, and. That is one of the precise points he makes in there is that with private property does come this added responsibility. And the analogy he uses, I I don't remember it exactly, but, you know, like a man on a farm owns a mule. And so this is not a socialist structure. The man actually owns the mule. And so he can say, this is my mule. But when that mule kicks down the neighbor's fence or kicks the neighbor, guess who's now responsible for the fence? The guy that owned the mule. Yeah. And so we do have to keep that balance as well, that with those added rights and added ownership comes greater responsibility, mm. not only for how we use them, but let's remember that, you know, people can come after us and say, well, it was your machinery. It was your mule that did this, you know? So yeah, there's a lot more responsibility there. Yeah. Well, the, um, is it in Exodus or Leviticus, but the first, um, the laws that are given to Moses, mm-hmm. it, it just reminded me of that. Yeah, that, you know, if, that's if you if your ox gores a man, then mm-hmm. you know the ox is put to death, <laughs> right? Or is it like, or you got to keep it in, and then if it does it a second time, the man who owns him gets 
yeah. put to death. I don't, I don't something know exactly, but, but it's something like, like that. They're like, like it's your, oh, and the man is fined. Whoever owns it is fined. Yeah. To the first time, but then he gets killed the second time. I don't remember the precise law, yeah. but, but it, no, it does reflect that idea. That, it definitely does. Yeah. That it's his responsibility because his animal, the animal's brute. So therefore, it could have just gotten out on its own. So you give the guy a chance or two to correct it. But if he's not, it's your responsibility, and you're responsible then for the death of that that other person. Yes. Um, man, oh man. So, so uh, that. It, it, tying directly into this, because we're, we're seeing this, these kind of two sides, right? This sort of socialist, everybody shares everything or it's vested in the hands of the state to distribute. And we're seeing, we've talked a lot about sort of runaway capitalism where uh, a lot of greed can become involved and a handful of wealthier, powerful people end up owning everything. The antidote in part really seems to be here, private property, because it goes to the root of how we deal with uh, problematic forms of socialism and problematic forms of capitalism. Um, the more private property that the more people own, the better things the better. are. Right. Um, and I just want to say this too, the whole idea of the dignity of work, and I, I just don't want us to forget this in the course of this conversation. This is something that the saints of the Catholic Church have made very clear for centuries is that everything we do, the simplest task to the most, you know, noble, has potential for untold value if it is done in charity. If it is being done for the glory of God, for the love of God, for the love of other people. Um, you see this particularly coming to the fore in the little flower in St. Therese. You know, it's not about doing uh, great things. It's about doing little things with great charity. And so while we have lost that pre-fall state, and so now we do have to do some toiling. We do have to eat our bread by the sweat of the brow. Sometimes it's a lot of toiling. And because we don't always find our jobs conducive to our personalities, you know, not everybody gets the perfect vocation. Look, we live in a fallen, broken world. So we can kind of just want to say, well, okay, that Eden stuff's a pipe dream. We just got to give in, do the drudge work. But that's what Christ came to redeem. He comes to redeem everything, including our jobs. And so while it may be toil and it may be difficult and it may not even be pleasant, if we can, by the grace of God, learn to do it with dignity and to offer it out of charity and for the glory of God, like Adam was supposed to do as the high priest of creation, then we exercise that priestly function in our day-to-day -day lives. We also exercise that lordship, that dominion over the things we work with and the parts of our mm -hmm. lives we have control with. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. This is what redeems work in our fallen world. Well, and, and we'd be remiss to be having this conversation about work and the dignity of work and, uh, and not talk about the fact that the Lord himself worked, worked you know, with he was a Joseph <laughs> for 30 years before, yeah. his, um, before his earthly ministry. I mean, I guess he wasn't working as like a, a toddler, a toddler, but yeah, maybe he was doing infant. playing with the tools or something. Probably. I don't know. Yeah. But well, yeah, have you seen those cute little paintings of little baby Jesus or, or child Jesus, like playing with a, his daddy's play. hammer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, there's something to that. But like, <laughs> I mean, St. Joseph, the worker yeah. is, he's that, the model. That's for one of the, this. that's one of the titles of St. Joseph. So, um, talk about redeeming work. God himself, work did that mm -hmm. and he worked and hard it wasn't and it's not like and that redeems work itself it does and it's not like 
he was famous. It's not like he was. I'm sure he was the best carpenter around because he was. Well, nobody's, got, like, nobody's got a Joseph yeah, since Cabinet, he created the you know, for sale on eBay. We don't know of a single thing he actually right, made. But apparently, yeah. there's a St. Joseph staircase that you can visit. That oh, some okay. random man came to a monastery and built a oh, staircase like that seemed impossible to oh, build. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. I don't remember that, but it's always been powerful to me to consider maybe it was saint joseph but well, john let me ask you this uh-huh. uh to to this point mentioning saint joseph the worker and this ties directly in to you know your some of your fields of study and interest sure um you know we're all aware and i think this has been discussed a little bit here before on the show of some of the really tragic conditions that existed in poland um after world war ii sure and how influential saint pope saint john paul ii was in it, well he was influential in so much i mean let's see bring down the berlin <laughs> where, wall where do we begin? ending communism right. in poland right. you know remarkable and i know you know a lot more about this so if you could speak to a little bit to how he went about that in poland i know there was the worker solidarity movement um was this you know coming from a pope was this a socialist communist program he was setting uh, setting up, how did how did he deal with the abuses that were going on there? Right, that's a good question. John Paul II, of course, lived through Nazism and communism, uh, and of course, he saw all of these things coming well before it happened. Um, by the time he was twenty years old, his entire family had died in different ways. He lost his father, the last member of his family, when he was twenty, right in the midst of the Nazi occupation of Poland. He saw friends of his die in the concentration camps. I mean, horrific things. He himself was hit by a car uh, and should have died. Literally hit by a Nazi vehicle and somehow survived. Right? He saw perhaps the worst of humanity in the history of humanity in many ways. And yet that forged him as an incredible witness to hope, you know, as George Weigel put it in his biography of him. Uh, But it was the Nazism that kind of set the tone and opened the doors for communism, right? I mean, I think of the the connection between capitalism and, and socialism and communism. It's almost like we get too comfortable. We have too many things that we, and then there's too much greed and monopolies that people want to redistribute it, which leads to socialism. This is like right. Nazi, Nazism right. on some level. And then eventually that leads to this even more nefarious dictatorship of communism, right? Mm -hmm. Not to get into the weeds on that, but this is what John Paul II lived through. I mean, the very words over the concentration camp in Auschwitz were Arbecht macht frei, which means work will set you free. And what do we know from scripture? It's not work that sets you free. It's the truth Mm -hmm. that sets you free. And the truth is a person, and that person is Jesus Christ, right? But Jesus Christ worked. So how do we reconcile what the Nazis did to these people by putting them through the Holocaust, the horrors of working on that kind of level? Uh, Well, the fact was that wasn't what they were made for. Human beings are not made for work. Work was made for human beings to flourish and to serve and praise God. But when it becomes this industrialized mechanization that treats human beings as cogs in the wheel, I mean, Hitler himself was even saying that life is nothing but work and survival, and it's that Darwinian principle, right? Survival of the fittest. And that creates nothing but totalitarian regimes, right? John Paul II endured this 
evil and then endured the longevity of the communist dictatorship after the fact because the communists invaded within two weeks of the nazis Mm -hmm. they actually conspired together to tear poland in half right and it was not the communists liberated poland it was they enslaved them even further and it wasn't until john paul ii was somehow mystically freed by being elected pope and then visiting Poland in 1979 to speak the same words he was already speaking as a cardinal in Poland, but now with the full authority of the global church to then give the people back their voice, give them their identity, remind them of their story. He said, you are not who they say you are. And the people in the crowds were literally chanting, we want God, we want yeah. God. What a moment. Yes. And Incredible. I mean, and this happened on Pentecost yeah. of all day, days, right? And so he said, yeah. let the Holy Spirit descend upon this land. And within two years, yeah. the very men who were receiving their faith and, and formation from Cardinal Vichinsky and Cardinal Wojtyla in the 1950s and 60s are now ready to strike in the Gdansk shipyards and other or other workers' places to begin the Solidarity Movement. And they formed enough of an organized front that basically crippled the influence of the Soviet Union so that by the, ni- by the end of the 1980s, true dignity was restored, and they had their first dem- democratic election in centuries, possibly, right? Yeah. Uh, or at least decades, since the early 1900s, if not before. And it all came from this one man enduring these horrific evils. Uh, and he worked in the rock quarries. Yeah. He worked in the mines. He was a, he worked with these men. So he knew the very working conditions he was speaking against 30 or 40 years later uh, as Pope. Yeah. And how he knew it had only gotten worse over those decades. I believe he writes about that in some of his poetry, doesn't he? Yeah, he yeah, definitely does. about the rock warrior or something. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. Yeah. It's magnificent. His poetry is amazing. It's a magnificent story. And, and that, to me, speaks to our own times. Because he was also the one, as we mentioned earlier, who recognized the materialism and secularization of society that is becoming its own form of dictatorship. I mean, yeah. you think of the addictions and the, and the suspicion we have of our own neighbors now. Who live next door to us, all fueled by this kind of uh, nine to five, constant live paycheck to paycheck, scarcity kind of mentality, where I don't want to share because I can barely hold it together myself. Well, it seems from what you're saying, John, that the, and this this ties everything together and goes right back to the beginning. This approach. Um, Instead of saying, okay, the poverty is really bad, the conditions are really bad, let's get people money, is to first focus on the restoring of the dignity, okay? Again, as I said earlier, I don't think we can understand work until we understand the dignity of the person, and I don't think we can free people from these unjust situations until there's first been emphasized their dignity. And that's what John Paul II does there, right? Exactly. He focuses in on the human dignity. Right. So uh, the practical question is, how do we do that in our own society, in our own times, in America, in the Archdiocese of Louisville, yeah. in our parishes? Because we have people who go to our churches who work hard at yeah. factories and, and all kinds of places, no different than what they must have done in Poland. But and there's the same kind of desperation and anxiety that seems to be continuing to grow in the hearts and minds of so many people we know. How do we remind them of who they are? How do we help them know that they are more 
than what their boss tells them they are. Right? This is this is this is at the heart of the gospel. The gospel informs every part of our lives, but the order has to be right. The gospel comes and then it does the informing. Uh, the things that Jesus taught can be very applicable to, you know, poverty, to economics, to hardships, to slavery and unjust injustice, all of these things. But the gospel is preached first, the good news. And yes, it doesn't mean we forget the other. We have to deal with these problems practically as they exist in our societies. Yes, because but otherwise work work gets in the way where yeah. people like, oh, I don't even have time to go to church right. because I'm working wherever I'm working. But I don't you know? think that people will have the inspiration and the correct focus to work on changing those problems until they've heard the good news. Yes. So, I mean, I do think in the end, and admittedly, that's kind of a quick way of saying to answer your question would take a whole nother episode or 20, right? <laughs> right. But I do think that that is at the core is treating people with dignity reaffirming the dignity of everybody is made in the image of God, uh, preaching the gospel message has to have a very foundational place um, in attempting to deal with political, economic, and societal ills. If we get it backwards, then it tends to fail. And that's where we may be at right mm -hmm. now. And we have to we have to write that ship, and we can through, you know, not just this podcast, obviously, but the hope is to practical conversations that we have with family and friends who are speaking of those desperate situations, where they're working too many hours, where they aren't prioritizing their faith or their family anymore because, well, I'm making money, I gotta pay my rent, and and as inflation increases, there, there's legitimate things that take people out of the home and out of their community that are unjust. But there are basically requirements because of the society right. we've built. And so there has to be some kind of paradigm shift. This is where society that. does need changing. This is where, you know, it, you know, I think we also need to remember as Catholics that um, we, we may need to become actively involved in politics, right? I think it's easy for us sometimes to sit back and talk. Right. Um, you can't sit in an ivory tower. People need to try to make changes. Yeah, well, and you know, I, you know, politics, one way to do it, um, that can get very hairy, morally speaking. <laughs> well, of course. Um, and you be careful. You know, I mean, just like, I'm like, involved in our communities. Uh, maybe I should put it that way. I th well, I actually think that's much better. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, you can't solve all the problems by becoming president no, or congressman, no, or right? None of that. And yeah. the other thing is that you're actually going to change the world not by making the right policy. The right policy doesn't exist. You will never make the right policy to fix things. And I think that where these conversations tend to fall flat and where they instantaneously, in my opinion, get quite boring mm -hmm. is when we start shouting at the clouds about society. Um, in my family, there's a, there's a, a running joke about, um, you guys know the movie into the wild about Chris McCandless, the guy who, uh, he like, I think I've heard graduates of it. from law school and he decides that he, that he hates oh, society. Yeah. Heard, so he I've like goes on a yeah. big, not seen it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. And then he like goes to Alaska. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. um, <laughs> anyways, there's a scene in there where it's uh, it's him and like Vince Vaughn and they're in like a bar and they're yeah. just like shouting society over and over again. That's kind of how this can sometimes feel. Um, <laughs> if we don't put it into the perspective 
the proper perspective, which is you're not going to change the world unless you let Jesus change you. Yes. Yep. And that requires actual encounter. That requires actual prayer. That requires actual work, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Um, yeah, because because genuine prayer is not easy. It's actually quite difficult and frustrating and something that requires a lot of practice. But the point is that this or that policy, we can, you know, the church gives us these guardrails. You can't subscribe to socialism and be a Catholic in good standing. You cannot subscribe to this, uh, like, laissez-faire, anything goes, yeah. capitalism. So these are sort of guardrails to keep us in from falling off the edge. But ultimately what will do it is that genuine encounter and love um, of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Nothing else will do it. Not the right policy, not the right thinking, none of it. Yeah. So I just think that that's something that that just needs to be emphasized. It's always an encounter um, with a person. Always. Right. Thank, thank you for that. I mean, I think that's that's everything, right? That that is that is the key. The world does not change through policies. It is only Christ that changed the world, and that's yeah. I have closing thought here. It's not mine. Uh, this is somebody else's thought. This is something that's meant a lot to me over the years because we've been talking a lot today about um, work as a form of necessity or toil. We talked about the pre-fall ideal of work. And, you know, we might think that that's a, so that's a pipe dream. People might look at that as an illusion. But when we can do things out of charity, even if they may not be our favorite things, right, then they become imbued with that higher dignity. And so it's not really a pipe dream. Robert Frost wrote a poem called Two Tramps in Mud Time. I love this poem. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but just a couple of verses, including the final one. And in the final one, while he's definitely favoring doing work because you love it uh, rather than over necessity, he agrees that necessity has the higher, um, is, is more important in a sense, like in a practical sense. But what he's getting at is he wants to see the two brought together. Um, and so the story is in this poem, he's out splitting wood and, uh, two tramps come out of the woods and, um, he says, one of them put me off my, my aim by hailing cheerily, hit them hard. I knew pretty well why he dropped behind and let the other go on away. I knew pretty well what he had in mind. He wanted to take my job for pay, right? So these guys are basically going to ask him, can we split some of your wood, get a few bucks? And throughout the remainder of the poem, he tries to show both sides of this, how he didn't need the money. He was enjoying the swing of the axe, the beautiful May sunshine, you know, all of these things. He was just loving what he was doing. Um, but then it's as if they have kind of a claim on him because they need the work and the money and like they ought to take his job. They feel like they've got that claim the way they're looking at him. Mm. Um, so he's kind of trying to balance these, these two, uh, two things. Here's the last two verses. Nothing on either side was said. They knew they had but to stay their stay, and all their logic would fill my head, as that I had no right to play with what was another man's work for gain. My right might be love, but theirs was need. And where the two exist in twain, theirs was the better right. Agreed. 
But yield who will to their separation, my object in living is to unite my avocation and my vocation, as my two eyes make one in sight. Only where love and need are one, and the work is play for mortal stakes, is the deed ever really done for heaven and the future's sakes. So, Two Tramps in Mud Time, great poem, but uh, so very beautiful and uh, kind of a nice way to finish this. Of yeah. Maybe we need to think more about vocation instead of jobs, right? Jobs have this whole yeah, idea of we got to make some calling. money. What, what fulfills you? What makes you? What yeah. makes you come to life? Right? If exactly. you if you just focus on making money from paycheck to paycheck, you will literally forget about the Sabbath, the rest mm-hmm. that we're meant to have with yeah. our family, our friends. Right? That going to worship. That's why I think, and this is the final thought I have is is that time in that in the, the Old Testament of Exodus and. Leviticus of the establishing of the Sabbath rest. The manna coming from heaven was meant to be uh, collected for six days. And then on the sixth day, you collected twice as much as you needed and you didn't collect any on the seventh. And it was mystical because if you collected twice as much on any other day, it would rot. And if you tried to go out on the seventh day, there was nothing to collect, right? So it was God literally establishing this mentality of work for six days and rest on the seventh day. And we as society today have forgotten Mm. the value of allowing God to love us. So it's not so much work to the weekend and you hate Mondays, but rather fill yourself up on the weekends and allow that to spill over into how you serve and work the rest of the week and then do so once it's the exact opposite. Yeah, the core mm. is is Sunday or you the Sabbath, right? You can make the exact right? same amount of money living paycheck to paycheck, yeah. but with absolute hope and trust in divine providence yeah. and joy in the work that you do. It's not like Sunday is like the the end. It's like Sunday is really the uh, the foundation from which the rest of the week should flow. Bingo. And I think uh, yeah. it also speaks more fundamentally of the future. It has that eschatological um, meaning of the Sabbath rest of, of heaven. And because God says that man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man, right? Um, this speaks to us of what would kind of an old technical language be called the final end of man, right? Not meaning like end in the sense of death or doom, but the purpose, the goal, like why we were made is work is not our final end. And the Sabbath was there to in part remind us of that. Um, we are never 100% fulfilled in this life. It is the beatific vision in heaven. That is what we are made for. This is what the old catechisms always said. What is man's final end? You know, to love and serve God in this, this life, to, to know be, him and be with, be him, with him, you know, forever in the, next. In, in the rest. It's the beatific vision. So the Sabbath reminds us, or Sunday, mm-hmm. of the fact that what we are essentially as humans is something far beyond the work that we do here. We are made for so much more than this. Yes. Yeah. I have uh, <clears throat> just one final thought on my end, which was, I, I wish we would have mentioned vocation earlier in the show, but yeah. alas. Eh, do another episode. Um, this show sets the stage like 20 shows, it seems I like. I feel like, right, yeah, right, yeah, absolutely. Right. <laughs> but that, you know, I, it just occurred to me that, like we said at the beginning, God made man to till the garden, Mm -hmm. to participate in creation and to bring it to fulfillment and flourishing. That's a general reality. Mm -hmm. 
But it's also an individual reality. God made every single one of us with that in mind. Hmm. Now it's, you know, my, my particular gifts and talents are not yours or John's or Eric's or anybody else. Yeah. Um, we each have our own corner of the garden, right? Right. As um, as Archbishop Fob said, yes. We we each have to tend that little corner that we're good at tending. That mm-hmm. God made us for that corner. He yeah. made us for that section, that work, whatever that is. Um, so that just speaks to the fact that you're here for a purpose, you're mm-hmm. here for a reason. God wants you here. Hence vocation. Yeah. Mother Teresa herself said, find your own Calcutta, right? Yeah. You have to live and serve where you've been planted. And right. and you have to have, if you have deep roots, let them grow, right? But you have to water those roots so that you can bloom. And grow yeah. beyond that, right? Yeah. Mm, beautiful stuff. It's been a great conversation, guys. I think that this really does has. lead into many future episodes, uh, but I really, I really enjoyed this. Really appreciated it, and I think that some of our good takeaways here are, you know, these these concepts of of flourishing keeps coming back to my mind. Um, there's something really beautiful in this original plan, and while our world is not yet perfect. Um, if we allow, as you said, Vince, that personal encounter with Christ to begin redeeming our lives, and then that moves on out into the world, then we can begin to see ourselves, our lives, our friends, family, children, even potentially nature itself beginning to start flourishing again. Could you imagine and if that businesses... Is, oh, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say, that is not a work of toil. That is a work of joy. Joy. It may involve suffering along the way, but it's imbued with a joy that is deeper. Could you imagine if our businesses closed on Sundays again? Yeah. Like we had when we were kids and beyond? I think we create the problem, you know what I mean? Because if, if they were closed, we say, oh, well, there's all these, these things we need, right, on Sundays. Well, maybe we need them because we are having to work on Sundays. You know, like if I didn't really have to to drive to my job, then I don't care about the gas station kind of thing. You know, I think we sort of create the problem. It becomes this vicious cycle. But we can imagine that world and find it again. Yeah. And that, that world only, is a world only with of the help of God. Yeah. Right? Praise all God. All right. Well, thank you all for uh, tuning in. Don't forget to like and subscribe and share and do all those things to, uh, you know, help spread the gospel message uh, throughout the world. And don't forget to also comment if you like something uh, you heard, leave a comment. If you didn't like something, leave a comment. If we made a mistake, let us know. If you have thoughts or ideas for future topics, please leave a comment there as well. And in the meantime, we hope every one of you has a wonderful week, and God bless you. Thank you for joining us on Spirit and Spire.